0: Hey, I want to tell you guys about another podcast I think you'll love. Deep Cover Mobland is the true story of a high-rolling Chicago lawyer named Robert Cooley who helped the outfit fix cases from traffic tickets to murder. Then he went undercover to take them down. You guys are probably familiar with the murder case he fixed for outfit hitman Harry Aileman. This resulted in Aileman walking from the murder of Billy Logan. After Cooley turned, he testified that he had bribed the judge in Aileman's first trial. The next judge ordered a new trial. He convicted Alemann of murder. Like the feds, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jake Halpern got Cooley to talk, and they take listeners on a wild journey into a world of corruption, murder, and mayhem in Chicago. You can listen to Deep Cover, Mobland, wherever you get your podcast. And on a personal note, I love this podcast, man. I had already listened to their first season about an FBI agent who started working a Midwest motorcycle gang drug case, and he ended up following the string that took down Manuel Noriega.
1: You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins.
0: Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there. I'm here in the studio of Gangland Wire. I've got on the Zoom call... and. Audio line special agent, retired special agent, Michael McGowan from the FBI, who has had some really interesting experiences over the years working undercover on the mob. And he's got a great Eastern accent, which I know a lot of you guys like. So uh, welcome, Michael. I'm really happy to have you on the show.
1: Thank you, guy. I appreciate you having me. So you got a
0: book, you got a book out there. Uh, Let me see. Uh, Ghost, my 30 years as an undercover FBI agent. Now, you kind of almost predate Joe Pistone, don't you?
1: No, Pistone was uh, one generation before me. Oh, okay. He was a mentor and, you know, set the gold standard for FBI undercover work and uh, uh, pleased to be able to call him a friend. Good. I had him on the show. Uh, actually got another little
0: sound bite from him for another show. he's uh, he's really an interesting guy and and I know I've talked to other FBI agents who've worked undercover uh, Ray Morrow from Cleveland and and he said when he got in the middle of his you know deep cover assignment that he was having problems. And and they sent him to talk to Joe Pistone, who kind of set him straight and told him how the cow ate the cabbage, as we say here in the Midwest, and and got him back on track. And I know he's been a an inspiration to every undercover FBI agent, truly undercover FBI agent that that has come along since him. So uh, I think the the whole country owes him a debt of gratitude because you guys have done a lot of work that that you know, wouldn't have. It just you can't even explain, folks what this means to have somebody that get into that deep cover like uh, uh, Joaquin, uh, Jack Garcia and, and Joe Pastone, and and now Mike McGowan. So uh, let's talk a little bit about your book, a little bit about your history. I think, Michael, uh, how did you get into the FBI? What...
1: Well, first, Gary, I want to make sure you understand in the small world department, I was a classmate in Quantico with Ray Morrow. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm going to play golf with him in uh, this well, this February. I'm going down
0: to Orlando area and we're going to play golf again. We did last year, too.
1: Please uh, pass along my hellos. I haven't talked to him in 30 plus years, but uh, will. great man, great career. Uh, I got into uh, the FBI via police work. I was a, uh, a street cop for four or five years before I joined the FBI. I come from a police family. Uh, my dad was a cop. My granddad was a cop. My son is now a cop. So <laughs> it's almost like we didn't have a choice. It was the family. Doing this. <laughs> so uh, I got into police work at a very young age. Uh, loved it. Ran around doing police work and uh, kind of bumped into the FBI at a couple of crime scenes. And uh, one of the uh, recruiting agents told me to fill out an application at the time, which I never thought would go through, but I looked at the pay scale and uh, jumped right on it. And <laughs> about a year later, uh, I got a invitation letter to Quantico. Wow,
0: well, you know, I, I know that that was the uh, you know the the route to the FBI. If you had uh, you were a, a good solid local copper that had three or four years experience, or you know, had to be a go to law school or be an accountant or have a language or something, that was the other path in that. And mm-hmm. uh, especially if you had local agents, that would say, yeah, I know this guy. Uh, we need him. Why? Uh, you, you were going to be in. I had a friend that did that back in the day. I was asked, but I didn't have a degree. So uh, and I never seemed to get up the oomph to get a degree for about 20 more years. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, uh, so I uh, went to Quantico and, and uh, what was
1: your first office? I was my first office of assignment was in Philadelphia again, you know, dropping names. Uh, I was on the same squad as Jack Garcia in Philadelphia. We were on a drug squad. Um, and that's where I was first exposed to the undercover work. Uh, I was a case agent, uh, using undercover agents, uh, didn't understand or, uh, didn't understand the technique at first but found it fascinating and as you can uh, imagine there's no better evidence than a good guy sitting next to a bad guy mm-hmm. with a tape recorder running so uh, i was uh, i was interested in the undercover technique uh, almost from the very beginning the first couple of minor assignments i had i was horrible and didn't do <laughs> well but i uh, i enjoyed it and then uh, for the majority of the remainder of my career, uh, that's what I did pretty much on a full-time basis.
0: Really, you know, I never really worked actually undercover. We worked plain clothes and we followed mobsters around, went to the bars with them, and see who their girlfriends were, and that kind of thing, gathered intelligence and and supported a lot of undercovers, you know, did surveillance on them while they were maybe inside on talking to somebody and we'd be available close by or maybe sitting up at the bar while they were sitting back at the table and be ready to, to take some kind of action if it was necessary. Uh, And, uh, but it's tough, you know, because I tell you what, all your habits that you learn, the language that you use, you have to, uh, you have to be so careful with that language. You say something like, well, his vehicle. Well, th- to a bad guy, bad guys don't say your vehicle. Cops say nope. your vehicle. And they know, you know, it's like their antenna just shoots
1: right up when you say some word like your vehicle. A hundred percent. So it's, there's a trade craft, uh, a lot of which I never discuss in public, but there, there's ways to uh, ingratiate There's ways to infiltrate. Uh, the language is an issue. Plus, the uh, I I worked undercover before there was any formalized FBI training, and and their belief at the time was if you had been a cop, then you'd be a good a uh, good undercover. But they didn't recognize you come from a yeah. you know chain of command disciplinary paramilitary organization. So yeah. it, it took me a while to uh, figure it out. And I actually tell people, and it's in the book, is the person I learned how to become an undercover was not an FBI agent. It happened to be a, a criminal who was an informant. And I literally spent hours and hours uh, just picking his brain before I went into these assignments. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very different way of going about doing a law enforcement job.
0: Really? I, I had a kid tell me, he said, you know, I can always tell you cops that are undercover. I said, wait well, you mean?" He said, you touch your gun and and i said oh no and and then i but i started becoming aware of myself when i had a gun stuck on my belt i'd touch it periodically just to make it's like touching your billfold or your keys make sure you're there you touch your you touch up at your belt or your gun or maybe if you had it you know somewhere else and you're small to your back i'd reach and all of a sudden i found out i did reach and touch it unknowingly so that all those little body language cues that's uh uh, that's the stuff that that gets there, you know, gets the hair on the back of the, of the bad guys' necks to stand up, and then they'll start, you know, really doubting who you are. And if they don't have any other history on you, they'll really doubt you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, uh, you know, was that uh, uh,
1: that informant? Was that Ron Privity? That was Ron Privity yeah. out of Philadelphia. Yeah, there's a um, a long story and history with him. I'm sure some of you listeners are aware of him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about him a little bit first and then we'll get into that, uh, Joy Molino case.
1: Uh, Ron Pervetti. So what happened was I had just come off a, uh, two year Russian organized crime, uh, undercover and figured I'd take a, uh, break for a little bit, but I got a call from a friend of mine in Philadelphia. I had now transferred to the, uh, Boston division and I got a call from, a friend of mine in the Philadelphia division who was working the organized crime case down there. And he asked me to meet with Provetti and see if uh, Provetti and I could uh, figure out how to work together. And while I would target the Boston mob, Provetti would handle the Philadelphia mob. It was a very unusual alliance. They were trying to connect a guy named Bobby Luisi in Boston to Joey Molino's faction down in Philadelphia, which is not a common. At that time, I had never even heard of two families working in that fashion, but it really didn't matter to the FBI. We had a chance to take a whack at, you know, two separate groups. Really? So I met with Prevetti. We hit it off from day one. Uh, As I tell many people, Prevetti was never, is is no saint. Mm -hmm. He's done a lot of bad things in his life, but as far as a, Government informant. This is all public record. This is he's testified in court. He's passed away. Yeah. You no. Know? Uh, this is all a matter of uh, court documents and public records. But he did a phenomenal job for the FBI during that investigation.
0: What What was his history? When he a uh, 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 Boston or Philadelphia cop at one time he, himself? Yeah, he,
1: he he served in the military. He was later a Philadelphia police officer. He was fired as a police officer for some unsavory acts. Uh, he went over to the other side. He worked security down in Atlantic City. He was involved in the horse racing industry. He had a colorful past for sure. Uh, and then he became connected to the Philadelphia organized crime, first with a boss down there named John Stanford. Mm-hmm. And then after uh, Stanford, he associated with uh, Joey Molino.
0: Now, did, uh, did Ron have did he have any kind of like special you kind know, of area of crime that he was involved in uh, for the mob? A lot of guys will have a specialty.
1: I'm not sure he had a specialty. He was kind of an all around okay. uh, type of guy. He had his hand. I mean, I remember at one point him telling me he had fixed some uh, horse urine to affect a, a racetrack event, yeah, uh, like like most mobsters, you know, he wakes up figuring out what he <laughs> needs to do that day to make a buck. So he would yeah. be, he would have his hands in all kinds of uh, criminal activity again, along with all the uh, other members of the Philadelphia crew.
0: Yeah, Michael, that's a great way to put it. Like most mobsters, he wakes up every day then trying to figure out how to make a buck. I think Joe Pistone even talked about that crew he was associated with and and lefty regerio, how each day they'd get together and they just constantly talk about different scams they could get into, how to make a buck that day. Kind well, of a...
1: Again, again, people people don't understand when you when you when you're especially when you're undercover against the mob, you spend hours and hours and hours with these people and the criminal activity discussion is very limited um, so you you have to be able to talk and and that's what you do you you, you throw theories ideas scams out there yeah. so you'd you'd sit around with these guys and you'd hear 10 12 different ideas of how they were going to make a buck that day <laughs> they spent more time talking about it than actually doing it but uh, you know that's their mindset it's how do i yeah. make a buck and, yeah. and the reason they get the reason they're susceptible to infiltration is you're somebody who can make them money. So yeah. they're interested in you.
0: Cool. So, uh, so Previty now this, uh, you know, Bobby Luisi, actually he was on the show. Uh, I think they said they called him Boston. Bobby moved from the, the Boston family down to the Philly family. Uh, uh, now he's, uh, I don't know. It seemed like he got born again or got saved or something. Did some time, came back out and turned his life around and, and, uh, he has been on the show. So, Let's talk about him and and Joey Merlino. How did that how, did you prove up that that they had a connection between the two families then?
1: Yeah, well, again, there was a there was an open investigation in Boston against Luisi and his crew. Luisi is a very well-known organized crime figure in Boston. He comes from a mob family. His dad was in the mob Uh So Boston had an open investigation against him. Philadelphia obviously had an open investigation against Merlino and his crowd. And once there was intelligence that the two of them were connecting to try to do business together, you know, we were all ears. And because uh, Previty was assisting the Philadelphia office, it made sense to see if an uh, undercover could be introduced. Now I could not meet Merlino when I was an agent. In the Philadelphia office. I was part of an arrest team uh, where we arrested Merlino on completely different charges years earlier, but I was part of that arrest team. And you know, the the potential that he could recall, I have a distinctive mustache. Uh, the potential that he could recall me as a uh, agent was something that we had to discuss and we we came up with the uh, plan that as long as I just dealt with the Boston guys and not the Philadelphia guys, we should be okay. So Previty handled the Philadelphia side and I handled the Boston side. So now uh, was this a narcotics
0: case in the end?
1: Well, we were investigating Luisi for a number of violations to include drug trafficking. We knew that he, uh, uh dabbled in, in cocaine trafficking, but, uh, as any good undercover will tell you, you don't walk up to somebody you've never <laughs> yeah. met and, and do a dope deal. So yeah. we had to start slow. Uh, I, we had a plan. I was introduced as a businessman. I had an import export business. You know, I worked out of Logan where things sometimes fell off the back of a truck. Ah. And, you know, I started out slowly with some stolen property. I sold uh, after Prevetti introduced me to them. I sold them uh, stolen furs, cigarettes, TVs, cigarettes, uh, just to show that I was an earner. I could make money. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I have to wonder know. if that still works. <laughs> Back in well, my yeah, day, yeah, that, no, that's what you know, we did. No, it's a different world now. You know, And this is what I always, you know, I get interviewed a lot and people say, well, you know, this is 30 years ago. Well, yeah, it's 30 years ago because I couldn't talk about any of this stuff for 30 years. Yeah. I was still an active agent. This yeah. is all uh, cases that have been adjudicated through the court system. Uh, what worked in 1999? Uh, you know, would it work today? Uh, there's still some things that you can try to get away with, but it's obviously a different world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause that, that showing up and that's why Joe Pistone got started. We had guys here in Kansas city that just, you know, you go out and buy a whole bunch of gold jewelry, and then say, "Hey, I got a really good deal," or "I got, you know, I got all these TVs that fell off a truck," and and you're immediately accepted as a bad guy because, like you said, well, you, you, get, you
1: know, you're making you money. Wet, you have to wet their whistle. You, you know, yeah. you just can't sit there. They're not. They don't deal with you because you know you're good looking or they like you. <laughs> yeah, you you yeah. got to have a reason to be there, and yeah. and you also, you know. You you got to come around as a knock around guy. You got to come around somebody who can't be played for a mark. You know you yeah. can't be somebody that they take advantage of. You got to, you know, have a little bit of an edge to you, and and you know that's what seems to uh, allow undercovers to to get inside.
0: Right. So how did it progress with Louis C? Well,
1: what happened was. Uh, Prevetti went to Merlino and said that he had a guy up in Boston that he had worked with previously. And the guy was looking for some, uh, some protection and some, somebody to work with up in the Boston area. And Merlino told Prevetti to, uh, to connect his guy, Prevetti's guy, me with Luisi and his crowd. There was no assurance that Luisi would take to it. We had to have a sit down Uh, that happened in my office, but we also set it up in a way that he saw that I, you know, I had a couple of bucks. I wasn't some street urchin just banging around on the street corners. Um, Prevetti put us together. And within the first, actually in the first meeting, uh, Luis, C. said to me at the end, you're with us, which as you know, in, in mob term is, yeah, you know, yeah. I fall under his protection. So we, you know, the first meeting was successful. And I tell people all the time that the reason the first meeting was successful was because of Prevetti, not me, you know, Prevetti set the stage.
0: Yeah. He's, he must've sold you pretty well.
1: Yep. But after that, after the first week, you know, Prevetti went back to handle Philadelphia and that side. And I, yep. I just went on my way in Boston.
0: So then how did that progress in Boston? Did you, uh, uh, you know, you were you're giving you're fencing stuff through him at a really good rate, I'm sure, and he was happy making money. Uh, would that? I mean, did he like to start introdu- introducing you to other people? Or
1: yeah, I got uh, introduced. You know, he he would like to Luisi, and again, you know, you had him on your show apparently, Luisi. Yeah. You know, he's a charismatic guy when he is. wants to be. Uh, he talks to good the good talk, and uh, he liked to almost show me off in a way I'd have to go into the North end. That's the Italian section of Boston uh-huh. I'd go in there and he'd introduce me to people would spend time together. And uh we just, you know, because of, like I said, because of the introduction and quickly, I started selling them the stolen property. I also gave him a watch as a gift for allowing me to join his crew. So within weeks if not a couple of months you know i was in pretty tight with them but mm-hmm. it was also something where you had to spend a lot of time with them hours and hours. people don't understand they they think you go in and five minutes later you walk <laughs> out with a deal. It, it's just not that way so i would spend you know eight ten twelve hours a day just uh chumming up with them and and getting them in a position that they trust to be enough to eventually do uh drug deals. And that's eventually where we led to
0: really. I, and I would imagine along that way, you could pass off all kinds of good intelligence to the, to the uh, one squad or whatever, the organized OC squad there in, in Boston about, you know, who was a bookie and who wasn't and how how oh, a lot yeah. of those you know, regular things work, just that gravy, if you will, from those interactions.
1: No intelligence wise. I mean, I'm sitting in the, I'm sitting in the lion's den with it. <laughs> really? can see, talk to, you know, watch everything going on. And so I would funnel all that information obviously back, but we had a pretty clear plan of what we intended to do. Um, and again, I wanna say, maybe I'm trying to think of the time period, but I would say within three or four months, I mean, he, he trusted me completely.
0: And to bring you in on narcotics operations, that was, because uh, there's there, you know such draconian sentences uh, for dealing in narcotics. And I would imagine they would keep that on the down low and protect as much as they could.
1: Well, again, you know, there's this fallacy out there from Hollywood or whatever, that the mob wasn't involved in uh, mm-hmm. drug trafficking. Yeah. Nothing could be further from the truth. They just didn't want to get caught. Yeah.
0: So how did it work? How was, how was Luisi's connection working?
1: Again, we knew, we knew from previous investigations, what he was uh, doing. So at one point we made the strategic decision. I had come into possession of what were supposed to be some stolen diamonds, and I I said to Bobby that the owner of the diamonds, who I had got the diamonds from, would sell them. But in, instead of cash, he wanted three bricks. And as soon as I said three bricks, Luisi pointed his finger at the ceiling and made a circular motion. Mm. As if we were being recorded and he pulled me out into the hallway and then we went down in a private stairwell and he whis I had a recorder running, but he whispered in my ear. Mm. uh, Basically, you know, I'd like I want to do that, but I don't want to get caught. Yeah. And so that's, you know, basically, uh, you know, he was predisposed to drug trafficking. Uh, An offer was put on the table. He chose to pursue it. So we continued on, and eventually I ended up. I think I bought. I think I bought three kilos from him and his crew, and negotiated for another four kilos, which in 1999 was a lot of dope. Uh, what was it? Cocaine, you mean? Cocaine,
0: yeah. Cocaine. And, and so, technically, how did that work? I'm always curious. Of like, did you? Did he tell you to go be in a certain place, and some other guy drops by and says, "Here's well, what, your- ha-
1: what happened with the what happened with the cocaine deal was." uh you know he agreed to uh sell it to me but then there were uh, a a few delays and eventually there was a telephone call arranged by luisi with merlino and Prevetti and and me the four of us got on a conference call (laughs) and merlino gave the green light uh that was disputed in court but any fbi agent or mobster would understand he gave the green light and within 48 hours I had two kilos in my possession, both of which were marked with 215 on them. And if anyone knows 215, that's the area code from Philadelphia. So Uh, they were literally, they were literally writing on the kilos, you know, here you go. This is from Philadelphia. So like you said, Luisi wouldn't touch the dope, Merlino wouldn't touch the dope. So they sent them a mule, a kid named Bobby Carroza and if you research uh boston mobsters his dad carosa senior was very influential in the boston mob mm-hmm. so he was using carosa junior as the go between and then uh we ended up taking the cocaine in my office and then we uh took a walk down the street and paid him at the uh, hotel at a hotel down the street mm-hmm. so we didn't mix the dope with the cash we did it the way you're supposed to do a dope deal, so you don't look like a uh, an idiot when you do it. So yeah. within, uh, I think it was within three months, we had our first two kilos and conversations with uh, Luis C. Carosa and, and his crew. Uh, really, uh, for, for you guys that don't know out there, you try not to <clears throat> ever
0: have the dope and the money in the same place.
1: If something happens, you don't want to lose everything.
0: Uh, well, you don't want to
1: get, get, yeah, get robbed and shot. If <laughs> really? <the> money, yeah. <laughs> that's probably not a good day. Yeah.
0: Those things, those dope deals with that big money. That's always fraught with like, is somebody going to get robbed here? Cause it's just, it's so much money. and so tempting that it's uh they're always, they're dangerous at, at very dangerous at best and, and deadly at their worst. Yeah, I bet you guys were, after you got Joy Merlino on the phone in <laughs> that conversation, then you get the dope in your hot little hands with that airy coat on there? I bet you, I bet they're running around doing the high fives and the victory dance since you're back in the squad room. Boy, I can't even imagine what that would feel like.
1: Well that, that 215 written on the kilos, that was yeah. critical evidence. <laughs> um, you know, you might as well write the name on it. I mean, yeah, this was all disputed later in court. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we knew right then that <clears throat> we had enough evidence to charge Molino, Luisi, Carosa, and his crowd.
0: Cool. That was that was a coup. That was a real takedown there. Now, did you uh did they have to expose you when you did a takedown on that?
1: Well, what happened on that was I bought those two, the first, that was the first deal. I did a second deal and I paid Luisi directly with the cash, which was uh, critical evidence. They all got arrested. Philadelphia was on a timeline. We knew we had about six months to make a case. So Philadelphia was going to arrest in the summertime. So we did another deal with the Boston side and then everybody got locked up in, uh, I believe it was June or July. And then, uh, everybody in Boston pled guilty except Luisi. He went to trial. So I had to testify in federal court, Mm -hmm. uh, his original, his first conviction was overturned. He went to trial a second time. He was convicted again. And after that testimony, I had to go to Philadelphia and testify at the uh, Merlino trial.
0: Uh, Now, what did they do with you? Did they, uh, take some extra precautions, transfer you out west or something for a while, or uh, what'd they do? No, with you? you know,
1: I, I get asked about that a lot. Uh, I went about it when, you, when you're in, you know, other undercovers may feel differently. Um, you know, an FBI agent was sworn to the United States Constitution, which says, you know, people charged with crimes can face their accusers. So I didn't ask for any, you know, I didn't ask for any, I faced these guys on the street, you know, the courtroom was no big deal. Yeah. And, you know, it's just our system. If you're supposed to testify, you do. Now they play all kinds of games. They ask you your home address. They ask you for, uh, you know, how many children you have, all this nonsense. That's just, you know, that's lawyers playing games. Um, I did my job. And my, part of my job is testifying in court. So that's what I did. Yeah. And there is a, with those old school
0: mafia, real deal mafia types, there is a certain, there's some rules in there. Uh, at least that was always our experience here in Kansas City. There were certain rules. And, and they well, also. Again,
1: there, there, there's no rules that are written down that you can check in a book. <laughs> right. But there's rules. But, you know, <laughs> I had a lot of, uh, you know, I had uh, defendants later tell me, after they were convicted, basically, you know, you did your job, you were fair, you were square. So, you know, no hard feelings. And that's just, people get excited about this testimony part. Like you have to wear wigs and, (laughs) and have machines, you know, that's, that's not our constitution.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, as
1: a, you know, as a cop, you know, as an agent, the day you're sworn in that you potentially can testify, that's part of the deal.
0: And you're so going to, no, I have, didn't,
1: I didn't have any, I didn't have any precautions taken. Yeah. I've, I've gotten
0: to know a guy that, that I actually just helped. I was a sergeant and I directed the surveillance on him that he went in, did about, did about 10 years on a, uh, he had a ring and, and he came back out and, and since then he's got hold of me and, and, uh, we meet for coffee periodically. And that's, that's what he always says. He says, you guys just did your job and, and I did mine And, and, uh,
1: right the government does, the government doesn't always win believe me <laughs> no uh, they don't you know, they you know. Know. in the in the Philadelphia case Merlino was convicted of racketeering but he was he was uh he beat the drug charge uh, so provetti took the hit on uh, not provetti uh luisi took the hit on the the cocaine case but uh Merlino beat that charge.
0: Yeah, I I think I was thinking that he did. I couldn't remember for sure. He certainly hadn't spent that much time in jail over the last uh ten or fifteen years to to do a uh, long bid on a cocaine charge, because they would have given him a ton of time on a cocaine charge.
1: Well, again, the the his his lawyer argued at trial when I testified, he showed all the audio and video up in Boston and we did the dope deal, including a telephone call. But in Philadelphia, you know, Provetti couldn't Wear a wire all the time. So yeah. A lot of it was, you know, just uh straight testimony. And again, you put your best case together, you you, you take your shot and what happens, happens. That's the system we work under.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now it, he, he would have been uh, uh, pretty easy uh, to uh, discredit him as a witness to throw a lot of doubt about anything he would say. I would imagine with his history.
1: No, they, they, they went after him pretty good. Oh, I bet. Um, they went after me pretty good. And you know, you just, you do your, your job and you testify to what happened and what that's up to a jury and a judge after yeah, that. Yeah. Cool.
0: That's a, that's a heck of a case, Michael. I'm telling you that is, I can't even imagine being part of that. Even if we're just like the, the guy that was holding the radios back be, to be on that squad, to be part of that case, to, to have that kind of a, a result, that would, that would be cool. So you did a case in, in Rhode Island that, that ended up,
1: uh, was that after this? Yeah, right after Luisi, Luisi lasted about six to eight months, I think. And within a couple of more months, an opportunity was presented to us to take a whack at uh, the Boston office, covers Rhode Island. Yeah. And Rhode Island's the Patriarcher family. And we knew that one of their captains, a, a guy named Matty Guglielmetti was coming out of prison. And he, was believed to position himself maybe to be the next boss so we we got a little bit proactive and developed a case where we were going to target Guglia Medi and the patriarcha crowd so I went I went into that assignment and I finished Luisi in 99 and I went into Google in uh, 2000.
0: Well, now, uh, I'm glad you said that. I read that name. It's like, man, how do you pronounce that with Guglia Once you hear it, it's, it's easy to say. But yeah. well, looking at it on a piece of paper, it's hard to figure out how to say it. Now, was he one of the guys that was, uh, was recorded on that making ceremony, the famous making ceremony that the Boston office yeah. did on Raymond Patrick yeah. Arca Jr.?
1: Yep. So in October of 89, as I'm sure you're aware, the only time the FBI has ever recorded an induction ceremony was in Medford, Massachusetts. Um, And Gugliametti was one of the maid members there that was inducting new men. And later in the case, uh, that, that Rhode Island case took five years. I was undercover five years, a long, long time. Wow. Uh, I didn't meet Gugliametti for almost two years into it, but once Gugliametti Matty and I became we became silent uh, business partners. I actually he brought up the induction ceremony one day and I played dumb and I asked him to explain it to me and he, he laid it out soup to nuts <laughs> know, really? how it happened so you know there, there's a uh, a mob captain you know verifying everything the government had alleged back in 89. Wow. Now, what was your cover on that? You weren't still, were you still using
0: an import-export business? Or no, did no, cover?
1: I changed completely in this place. In this case, I was a, uh, I was a very successful businessman out of the Midwest, actually, huh. and uh, I own parking garages and I own strip clubs.
0: Mm. Oh yeah, and they like those
1: strip clubs, don't they? Yes, yes they do. <laughs> and I was, uh, you know, I was somebody who could throw some money around. Yeah, but Guglielmetti was uh you got to understand the history of Rhode Island Rhode Island for centuries have been the relationship between organized crime and politicians and yeah. union officials is just incredible down there so we knew he was tight in the construction industry so my persona was I was transitioning from parking garages which was an all cash business um which is interesting to them yeah and I was in, I was transitioning into the construction business. So we formed a construction company. We hired, uh, we actually hired subcontractors. I had other FBI agents who come from construction backgrounds mm. and financial backgrounds helping me. And we, we set up a whole company. Wow. So what was Guglielmetti? What 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 was his scam gonna be?
0: What 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 did he bring to this? Bit? Again, Just we to- didn't
1: we didn't know we didn't know initially. We <clears throat> we wanted to establish a presence to see what moves Guglielmetti was gonna make. Was he gonna be? Louis Monacchio was the boss. You probably recognize that name. Yeah. Um, but he was in his seventies. He was he was on his way out the door to prison. So we knew somebody else was going to step up and if it was going to be Google Emedi, we wanted to track what he was involved in. So again between the the unions and between the construction uh industries relationship with the public officials there, you know, there was a lot of things to keep our eyes on. Um, but again, we didn't know if Google Emedi would bite. Like I said, we didn't I had a deal with another guy, one of his underlings a guy named Bobby Notalillo. I had a, I had a deal with Notalillo for like a year and a half before he introduced me to Guglielmetti mm-hmm. so you know the FBI had to be patient and uh, you know this was something where I had to spend you know in the Luisi case I was introduced by Prevetti so I was already in here I went in cold I didn't have anybody introduce me I just showed up out of the blue one day and started doing my thing
0: Huh. so how how do you i guess uh, begs the question then how'd you make your, your first contact if you didn't have anybody to introduce you end in?
1: well we, we we did have it we had an informant initially but he was he was a he was not very reliable so <laughs> yeah. he had, he identified a location where they would be running a gambling uh, club and i uh i was invited to that gambling club knowing certain people would be there not Google, Mehdi, but other yeah. certain people and i just went in there and worked the room cold. And by the time I was done that night, I had, you know, gathered some phone numbers and we were off and running. Cool. You start throwing a little money
0: around. And uh, I'm curious about this strip club thing. What, what, what are the scams that the mob has around strip
1: clubs? Well, again, I was an agent for 30 years. I worked a lot of organized crime and, in almost every city I was assigned to or went to, there was some type of nexus between organized crime and these strip clubs. You got to remember, it's a cash business. Uh, there's all kinds of shenanigans that go on in there. I actually went, I went to another city. Uh, we had an FBI informant who owned a strip club, and he basically taught me the business. He showed me literally from buying liquor to scheduling the dancers to security all of that uh and i've used that repeatedly or i did use that repeatedly over my career because they're always around it you go into any strip club yeah gentlemen's club, whatever they want to call it. You know, it may look nice. It may look upscale, but at the end of the day, somebody's taking money out the back door. Believe. It. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The same way here in Kansas city, they like lined up about uh, everyone in the city that they could, all of them, but one, it seemed like they, the mob family got them all lined up that uh, their guy being a mover and shaker in, in all of them. And
1: yeah. well, that's how we, that's also how we got Google and come out, come out of the, uh, Come out of the dark because I was supposed to be looking at buying a club in Tampa and I was getting some interference from the Tamster mob, from the ah, Tam, Tampa, Tampa mobbers. Mob. And Gugliometti, after a year and a half of me being with Narda Lillo, he agreed to uh, represent me, so ah. to speak, and go down there and talk to it. He was actually talking to another undercover agent, which he didn't realize, obviously. <laughs> but that's how we got our foot in the door. And the whole time I was meeting with them, our meeting place was a strip club in Providence, a yeah. place that's closed now, but it's called Centifolds. That was like the uh, the meeting grounds. I'll tell you what, and that's, uh, uh, in a way, that's
0: part of the problem of, of working undercover, and especially when you work like you do, is as you're constantly there's, there's drinking all the time. And in these seedy kind of places like this, (laughs) This well, again,
1: you gotta, you gotta set the tone. And I tell this, I tell this, you know, I still train undercover agents now. And I tell them everything you do as an undercover agent, especially in a situation like I was in with women, booze money all around, every act is later going to be reviewed by a jury or a judge. And the FBI. You can't be, you can't do stupid things, pure and simple. So I would tell people, you know, I'd establish right off the bat I wasn't a big drinker. Yeah. I'd yeah. establish I had a girl. I wouldn't mix business with pleasure. I'm not going to take a dancer home because I'm thinking about buying the place. Yeah. yeah so you true. have to, you have to set those guidelines very early on. And I did with them and they were, they were fine with it. They, you know, again, misconceptions, mobsters, for the most part, aren't big drinkers. Yeah, that's huh. true. The real deal guys are not big. Drinkers. The, the real hard guy. Yeah, yeah, the real hard guy. The wannabes want to drink all day long. Right, right. Uh, the decision makers, you know, they're businessmen. They're not going to be falling down drunk because they got to make a financial
0: decisions, Right. And they'll have a girlfriend. They're Gumar, as they, they say in the vernacular, but
1: they don't whore around like that either. It was just every no, girl. No, it's just, you know, there's too many problems that yeah. come from that, you know. And again, you know, I'm an FBI agent. I never got into, you know, you hear stories about agents blurring their identity. And that's not true. I never, Yeah. I knew I was an FBI agent. I wasn't a strip club owner or a you yeah. know, player. <laughs> I had a job to do, and that's just where yeah. the evidence
0: was to be collected. Which is why certain people get selected, and certain people work that real deep undercover, and certain other people don't work. They can be great agents or officers, but you do not want to put them in that situation.
1: Un- no, un- uh, you know, There's a lot of temptation around it. it is, there is kind of temptation. Of, yeah. And you just got to understand what your assignment is and go ahead and do it in the best, you know, because later you're going to be sitting in a jury box and you need to explain to 12 regular people why you did what you did. Yeah, really. So what happened with Gugli and does uh, Again, we spent we spent a lot of time with Gugli and Maddie, uh, before I actually met him. Again, going back to the drug world, we knew that they were involved in drug trafficking. So we set up some drug protection details where the mob would protect uh, drugs that belong to us, uh, physical security. Mm-hmm. We did that a couple of times. There was money to be made there. So Google and Medi kind of took a cut of that. and then we did some, you know, we did some construction projects, we did some interactions with the it became all-encompassing because it wasn't a straight organized crime case. There was a public corruption aspect to it. There was some uh, union corruption to it. So it kind of went in a couple of different directions. But basically for the last three years of the investigation, Guglielmetti was my silent partner in that construction company I met. So he would take me around, introduce me. And, you know, eventually he was charged with the drug. We did some more drug protection details, which he was, actively involved, and we actually supervised it together. And again, this is all on video and audio tape. There was no disputing it. So uh, when he was charged, he, he actually pled guilty within the first week or two because you know he he was embarrassed that we had uh, got inside. Yeah, really. So by the public corruption
0: cases, he would introduce you to certain public officials that would then, you were able to, to slide them some money under the table in order to get contracts
1: Exactly. Same way with union people. Yeah, exactly. The history in Rhode Island is it's been a very, very corrupt state for many, many years. Uh, We knocked out some of the laborers, unions, officials, including uh, the the national level. Uh, It was a very, uh, very widespread investigation into the relationship between those factions in uh, Rhode Island. So well, he would take and then he would get a little piece of that action. He was getting a piece
0: of your construction company and he was connecting you up with the right union people to, uh, you know, uh, beat them on union contracts or maybe hire non-union people to keep the overhead down.
1: Yeah. Again, what I said earlier in our conversation, they wake up every day figuring out how they're going to make a buck. So I when he became my silent partner, I would bring every opportunity to him, whether he wanted to do it or not. For yeah. example, we did it. We did some money laundering uh, and I went straight to him, said, listen, Matty, here's the opportunity. Here's what I'm doing. As you know, in money laundering, you have to identify the SUA, the specific unlawful activity. And I made it clear it was drug trafficking. He didn't want to hear it, but he wanted to take the cash. And he ended up taking, I think, 18 grand or 20 grand for mm-hmm. a dope deal. Interesting. Now,
0: one last question, and and I'm going to let you get on with your day, Michael. I really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, On that drug protection, how did that work? I mean, you were like uh, providing security for what he thought was somebody else's uh, stash, you know, large stash of cocaine. Yes,
1: I I introduced another undercover agent as a drug trafficker. Okay. And that, that agent was moving drugs from New York City up to Canada. Uh, The drugs had to sleep or park overnight in Rhode Island, and they needed to be protected. So they would protect it. They knew we would show them the kilos. We would show them that it was drug trafficking. They knew what they were doing. And they would send armed people to protect it. Um, In the federal system, once they know that that is uh, drugs, it's just like they're distri- uh, distributing it or possessing it. It's the same, generally the same, um, uh, federal guidelines on that, but the, you know, because they were the mob in our eyes and we were enthralled to be dealing with them, we asked yeah. them to protect it. So nobody would steal our drugs.
0: Uh, so then he just dispatch a couple of associates, uh, <laughs> uh, over there, that guys that, that he had influence over and wanted to be part of his crew.
1: Yeah, he had a he had a whole crew that he used. You know, there was guys who would sit in the room. There were guys who watched a parking lot. It was a whole staged event. I see. But everybody, we brought them all in to make sure they all understood. <laughs> that's slick. I've never heard of that before. That's why I had to ask.
0: That's slick. yeah, no,
1: that's something that you know we we had done that in other parts of the country. Huh. Um, again, I'm not I'm not revealing any trade secrets. Right. This stuff has all gone through the court system. Yeah, it's all been out you there. Know, but as, as you know, if you're an organized crime guy, you know, their greediness will always, always
0: win, win out. That's for sure. All you got to do is appeal to making them some money and, and they're going to bite in some way. they, they always,
1: you know, they're always going to argue. You set them up. You made yeah, them do yeah. things. That, you know, you give them the opportunity. Every case I ever worked, I have a famous line I use when I'm negotiating with them. And I say, there's the door. If you don't want to do this, leave. And that's the first, that's the first tape we usually play for the jury. Yeah. You, you, you were given take, an opportunity
0: to walk away. You were taking advantage of what they call FOMO, fear of missing
1: out. Well, <laughs> they made their decisions. I like mob guys for the most part. They're funny guys. They're yeah. fun to be around. They just, you know, they have a little uh a little problem with conducting criminal yeah. activity uh, and that's where, you know.
0: I don't know of several professional criminals over my career and i'm sure you ran into this you just want to say dude with your charisma and your knowledge and your 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 brains and your work ethic why don't you get into something where you can make legitimate money you could do well and
1: i asked one guy
0: that he said i don't know it wouldn't be fun
1: (laughs) exactly they they love the thrill and you know (laughs) you're right The, the some of the mob guys i dealt with were some of the most Brightest guys I have come across. They had, you know, especially business acumen. Yep. And they understood how to make a bucket just to making it on the other side.
0: <laughs> well, it would be so excited All right, special agent, retired special agent Michael McGowan. The uh, what'd you say? The name of the book and how people can
1: find that. You the book is named Ghost: My Thirty Years as an FBI Undercover Agent. Uh, it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And uh, take a shot and figure, see what I did for the last 30 years. All right. It's, it's, it's
0: going to be a thrill a minute, ride in that book it's, it's going to be like, uh, you know, everybody uh, loves Joe Pistone and, and Donnie Brasco, but this story these stories are just as thrilling and, and in some ways, maybe a, a little more so. And so I recommend you get that book folks. Thanks a lot, Michael. I really appreciate you coming on the show.
1: Thank you, Gary.
0: I appreciate it. Well, folks, that ends another gangland wire episode. I really appreciate you tuning in and listening. However you listen to it, whether it's on the website or on one of the apps, I, I also want to express my thanks and sincere appreciation for the kind reviews that you've given me, uh, on the app the Apple app or or some of the other podcast apps. I don't check. I used to check them when I first did this, I checked them a lot, but I don't check them anymore. So once in a while I look at them, uh, sometimes I get, you know, sometimes I get my feelings hurt, especially on YouTube, but that's okay. Uh, if you put yourself out there, you, you better not have a thin skin. I've learned that, uh, you know, my most recent documentary, I really want to express uh, uh, extra appreciation to the people that stepped up and helped me finance that movie and, and able to increase the production values, uh, hired a professional to do the reenactment scenes and some of the other things and got some better music I had to pay for. And we have it out now. Now, the last time I did one of these endings for the uh Uh, podcast, I, I had a different title. I changed the title just at the last minute. It's now about theft, burglary, murder, and cover up. So I encourage you to come on the website. I can't get it on Amazon like I have Brothers Against Brothers and Gangland Wire because they changed their rules. And if I can't get a theatrical release like a major film studio or get it in a major film festival, which is kind of like, uh, um, uh, I don't know what it's like, It's, it's, it's dang near impossible unless you're politically connected to some of the people that run these film festivals. And a guy like me uh, doesn't really have a chance. It's been my experience. I fought that a few years back and, and I gave up. It's, it's too much effort for uh, too little payoff. Uh, but if you want to stream it, it's on my website for $1.99. I figured out a way to do that and uh, you, you, you pay me $1.99 and I will send you a link to stream it as well as my other two movies. You want to stream them for $1.99. Of course I have the DVDs for sale if you make a donation, why, uh, I'll give you the DVD and give you a streaming, uh, link too, or a book or Kindle book, whatever you want. Yeah. You guys kind of know the drill by now, if you've been listening to it, if not just go to my donate page. I, uh, uh, one last thing I've kind of, uh, off on this PTSD thing. I used to always, uh, uh, want to try to promote that. So, uh, if you've been listening to podcasts, you know what to do, but uh, if you have any problems with PTSD and you know, and you're a veteran, then you know, go to the VA. If not, go to the VA website, or just Google VA hospital PTSD, and they've got a hotline and they've got a lot of resources. And even if you're not a veteran, or if you just know a veteran, you can you can go there and find the resources. If you're not a veteran, you can go there and find resources. So I appreciate all your support over the years, and uh, we'll see you again next week or listen to you next week or you'll listen to me. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.